Well, church, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, there's not a lot of tradition in us as we are a young church plant, but some traditions I think are worth tapping into from the history of the church. And today, remembering that Christ is risen is why we gather in celebration, in worship, uh, to commemorate and remind ourselves of the common truth, which we celebrate every Sunday, but let's say more concretely, more in focus this Sunday, we will fixate our time on his resurrection and all of what that entails for us. Today, in our time together, we are going to be talking about new creation. What is new creation? What does the resurrection have to say about new creation? And, and what does it tell us? What does new creation tell us about ourselves in light of Christ and our future hope and expectancy in light of his resurrection? On Friday this week, we recall Christ's words on the cross where he says the words, it is finished. And when we gather on Good Friday, one of the things we recall is all of what Christ has accomplished definitively on the cross in his crucifixion and the suffering and passion which he endures on our behalf. But then today, we do not remember the words of Christ, it is finished. We remember the words of the angels and the words of Mary and uh, Martha, when they go from the tomb and they announce to the disciples, he is risen. He is absent from the tomb. He is not to be found here. He is resurrected from his death. These are the words which we gather around and we remember today as we celebrate his resurrection. Now, it might seem strange to you uh, because, well, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for any length of time, the resurrection seems like something that is a basic, a fundamental, a building block. It's not something we often feel we need to return to in remembrance of because, well, every Christian knows and believes in the resurrection. So what is the point of year after year reminding ourselves of this truth? What is the purpose of bringing it up all the time? If you're like me, uh, you might have grown up in church and you might not remember an Easter that passed by without you attending church and hearing a sermon on some topic regarding Christ's resurrection, whether that be proofs of his resurrection or let's say, implications of his resurrection or something to do with his bodily resurrection. That's what we do year after year. So why is it that you would have to reflect once again, if that's your situation, on, on this truth this Sunday? Well, to understand that, uh, one of the things I find helpful is reminding myself that, well, when I was playing baseball and when I was watching baseball, one of the things that happens every single year at the beginning of the baseball season is something called spring training. And what happens is the greatest baseball athletes in the world who play in the major leagues, they come to the beginning of every baseball season to gather together to play catch, to hit balls off of a tee, to throw underhand and hit that. They, they do the basics. They do the fundamentals for a couple of weeks because every great baseball player knows that in order to be good, you have to have the fundamentals down. You have to have the basics down. And if you don't return to the basics, if you don't revisit them, reflect on them, understand them once again, that you risk losing them. Those are skills that, which can erode over time. So it is with our understanding of the resurrection. As Christians, if we do not regularly re revisit and understand these truths, but we, we risk eroding our understanding of what it is, how it applies to our lives. So we don't wake up on Monday understanding how the resurrection has impacted our day. We wake up on Monday thinking about how has my job or my boss or my relationship with my friend or family member impacted my day, we don't often think about how does the resurrection impact my day to day. And that's why we need to 
yearly on Easter Sunday, remember the resurrection of Christ because it has much to say about our daily life. So with that, uh, we are going to be, let's say, looking at this text here in John chapter 11, but we'll be bouncing around a little bit in the Gospel of John because while we're zoning in here on chapter 11, it's, it's taking part in a longer discourse in John's Gospel that has to do with what Christ is doing in his work on earth. And he comes, as he says here to Martha, to announce that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the hope and the expectancy and the answer to the Jewish, the Jewish need. He's the Jewish Messiah, and he, and he comes to be the Jewish resurrection, and we might say also the resurrection for all who are faithful to God. But John doesn't just pick this up here in chapter 11. In fact, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1, he starts off his gospel by framing it in context of creation. In John chapter 1, we find that when Jesus is first introduced to us in John's writing, in his prologue, he introduces Jesus not as the servant of God, not as the man born in the genealogy of David. He introduces us to Jesus as the word who was present at the beginning of creation at the start. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When John frames how he's going to unpack his gospel, he starts it off by telling us, remember creation at the start. If you're a a reader of the scriptures, one of the things you recall is that creation in God's good providence is created perfect. It is created without flaw, without error, without blemish. Creation is good when God creates it. And so when John writes his gospel, he, he anchors his readers back to good creation, first creation, because what he's setting up is that after the creation falls and enters into corruption, well, this word who is present at the beginning of creation is here in the current world to make a new creation, to make a new kind of person, a new, a new heavens, a new earth, a, a new expectancy for the cosmos. A new creation is afoot. That is what John establishes by calling us to first creation. And Jesus here answers the question more narrowly because in, in this scene, in John chapter 11, one of the things that's going on, you'll re- remember the story, Lazarus has perished. He's been dead for a number of days. Jesus is now about to heal him. But before Jesus heals Lazarus, one of the things he does is he theologically frames what's going on. And he does so by this interaction with, with Mary, uh, or sorry, with Martha. He speaks with Martha and he asks her a theological question and notice Martha's theological answer. Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, you ought not to miss that. That is Martha expressing what we would call Jewish Orthodox belief in the first century. An Orthodox Jew in the first century believed in the bodily resurrection on the last day. Jesus says he will be resurrected, and she says, I know he will. That's every faithful Jew's eschatological hope that at the end of time, There will be this bodily resurrection. But the Jews don't have much more clarity on it than that. Some of them think it is by obeying the Mosaic law you enter into this resurrection. Some of them think it's by being Jewish you enter into this resurrection. There's a lot of confusion there. But what Jesus says in in clarifying to her what's going on, 
he doesn't leave the resurrection off only for the, es- the last day in the future. What he does, verse 25, is he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So that hope that the Jewish person has in the future for bodily resurrection, Jesus says, I am it. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the hope of new creation. At the end of time, what the Jewish person is expecting to happen is that God will judge the world and creation will be resurrected and all his faithful will enter into his garden city with him back into Eden, into perfect creation. And Jesus says to Martha, rather uh, uh, surprisingly, I am that resurrection. I am this resurrection that you expect. Now, that means a number of things for us today. But one of the things that it does not mean, or we should not take it to mean, is that he is talking about a spiritual resurrection. When he is talking to Martha about Lazarus, the implication is not that Lazarus has ceased to exist and he will be spiritually resurrected. The the answer that they're looking for is, what about his body? What will happen to his body? And and Jesus says, I am the resurrection. It is a, a bodily resurrection, which is to be expected. This is important because the church today, the evangelical church, whether overtly by, by active teaching or by just passively listening to culture, believes something like the resurrection that Jesus accomplished is a spiritual resurrection in our hearts privately that does not really have any bearing on a future bodily hope. That God resurrected Christ spiritually, that he spiritually lives within each of us, and that that's all there is to it. The problem with that is that no Jewish person in the first century would have expected that. And more so, Jesus wouldn't have reinforced the idea of him being the resurrection if that was to be misunderstood at its face value. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection. And right after he says this, what does he do but resurrect Lazarus from the grave in his body? Lazarus walks out of the grave bodily. That's that's an important note because what this means for us in the West, particularly those of us who, well, we live post-enlightenment in a rational, naturalistic world, we think about the resurrection purely, almost by default, in spiritual terms. So when you think about what Christ accomplished in his resurrection, you might think about he resurrected to help us morally live better lives. He resurrected to help us have a hope for the future, vague and maybe disembodied kind of hope for the future. But what this text tells us and what John's gospel is enforcing to us is that his resurrection is one that happens in our bodies. It is something that happens in the human body. Now, what that means is, as we're going to see in just a moment, new creation, what you are in Christ being made new by his power and the work of his spirit, is something that cannot then happen only in your spirit. It carries itself out also in your body. Because Christians aren't Gnostics. Yeah, I'll say that a different way. Christians don't believe only in the spiritual plane as departed from the physical plane. You might think about it this way. We don't believe as Christians that our bodies are corrupt and our souls are perfected and thus we struggle in this life to be departed from our bodies and to be soulish ghosts in eternity. That is not the Christian hope. New creation mirrors first creation in that it is a body and soul creation. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, that is not a disembodied last day experience where you think about heaven and the glory that is to be expected there. 
Uh, we think about ourselves kind of vaguely as ghosts who exist in the sky, singing praises to God. That's, that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is that we have a future glorified body, which will be united to our future glorified soul, which will both be united together, as was in first creation, Adam and Eve in the garden, and we have a, a hope and an enjoyment and a bodily experience of hope and resurrection in the future. Part of what that implies, part of what the New Testament teaches in light of this, is that what you do with your body is immensely important to your Christian sanctification. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians is you are Christ's body, you are his temple, can you join Christ's member to the member of a prostitute? Because what the Corinthians believed is that what they did in their souls was all that mattered, what they did in their bodies didn't matter, and so they could sleep with whoever they wanted because, well, as long as their soul was enlightened, their bodies could do whatever they wanted. In new creation, that's not a possibility because our bodies are being redeemed just as our souls are being redeemed. This is an expectation for Christians. It's part of what Jesus implies here when he says he is the resurrection. Additionally, we notice not just that Jesus says he's the resurrection in this text, but he tells us how we are to be attached to his resurrection. He says at the second sentence of verse 25, whoever, or if you have an old King James, whosoever believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is a strange thing because, well, when someone dies, what does the world tell us? What do we generally believe? If someone dies, they die. If someone dies, they're gone. If someone dies, they are no more. And here Jesus is saying to Martha, who has just lost her brother, if someone believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, here it seems to imply a spiritual ongoing of life, a spiritual life which is to be expected, right? It seems as though he's saying if the person dies bodily, they live on spiritually. That's the, the hope. However, however, this is, this is not the sole implication of what he's saying because, yes, those who are absent, who are, who are dead, who have passed on, they do on go into life. But the point of this is a, a resurrected life. See the previous sentence where the resurrection is the pretext for what life is like. It is a bodily life, a bodily living. And this is the, the hope of the Christian that whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, even if we were to perish, even if we were to be martyred, even if our bodies were to experience cancer and decay and death, even if we were to die prematurely from any kind of medical malformity, if we were to die in a car accident, if we die, we will live. Because... We have a new creation body awaiting us, and we will persist into that end because, well, Christ Jesus is the resurrection and the life, so whoever's in him has this hope in the future. And then comes an interesting question. In light of all of this teaching in verse 26, he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he turns and asks Martha a very powerful question. Do you believe this? Now, you'll notice if you look just at the next section, she answers him by saying, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's a powerful statement of belief by Martha. It's the kind of answer you should have if you're asked the question, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's a very good theological answer on Martha's part. We can learn quite a bit from her 
theology here, not only her bodily resurrection expectation, but also her understanding of what does it mean to believe. We believe things about God. We don't just believe vaguely into Christ, believe in Jesus, but don't explain who he is or what he's about or what he's like. We believe things about Jesus. For example, she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Now, you might not catch that because Christ and Jesus seem to be interchangeable names, but she's saying to Jesus that he is the Jewish Messiah. She's saying, I believe that you are this Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the one who is the hope for the Jewish people. You are the son of God. This is another language of expectancy, a language of Old Testament hope, prophetic hope. So she's saying two theological things there about Christ. And then she says a third, who is coming into the world, meaning, well, in the Jewish Old Testament frame, God brings about his kingdom through his anointed one, through his Messiah, by his throne, over the earth, subduing all things unto his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 says, he shall reign until all things are put in subjection under his feet. So she says three theological things about Christ, or about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he is this son of God who is to reign on the throne, and that he is coming into the world. He is subduing the world, reigning over it, having dominion over it. That is wonderfully robust theology, and theology which transcends the most average American evangelical expression of faith, which says, I believe in God vaguely as a good friend of mine, but I don't want to comment more on what that belief looks like. The belief of the Christian, the belief of the faithful Jew in the first century, the belief of Martha, is a model for us of what we ought to expect our belief to look like. We believe things about this Savior. Now, if you feel like all of this is kind of abstract right now, now we come to the point where we go, okay, what does this all have to do with new creation? What does this all have to do with Christ, our resurrection hope? What does this all have to do with why we gather here on Sunday at church? Well, Christ in his resurrection body models for us what are we to expect in our new creation. And it tells us a number of things about ourselves, but one of the things that is helpful for us to understand is that a new creation implies a new nature. A new creation implies a new set of habits, behaviors, and desires. When I was growing up, I know this uh, is a controversial opinion among this body of believers, I grew up with dogs in the family. <laughs> we, had, we had dogs all the time when I was growing up, usually a couple at a time, but particularly when I was in grade school, uh, we would walk just around the block to my elementary school. I would get dropped off every day. My dad would walk me and my siblings with our dog to the school, and then they would walk back. This was how the dog would get exercise. But growing up around dogs, you begin to learn certain things about how they behave, what they are like. For instance, if you drop food on the ground and the dog is around, the food now belongs to the dog. You can't expect the dog to discern, is this healthy for me or unhealthy for me, before it latches onto the food and eats it. This is why you're not supposed to drop chocolate on the ground right around dogs, because well, they don't know. They're just going to eat whatever's in front of them. They'll eat whatever they have access to, whenever they have access to it. This is what dogs are like. They are like this by nature. Well, we can't expect any more of dogs because this is their nature. This is who they are. This is what they are. But suppose, suppose you met a grown adult human being who, when you dropped food onto the floor, 
They just went on hands and knees and ate the food off the floor. <laughs> this would be a strange thing. Why? Because it's not according to their nature. Humans don't behave that way. Dogs, it's nothing for dogs. They do behave that way. Humans don't. This is what it is like for a Christian to engage in sin as a new creation. As sinners, we behave according to our nature. We, we do sin because it is who we are. It is what we are like. It is what we enjoy. But as a new creation, bought by the blood of Christ, remade in his image, born of the Holy Spirit, to engage in sin is to engage in something that is now contrary to our nature. It is to be an adult person who, when food is thrown on the ground, you go to your hands and knees and you eat it, behaving in a way contrary to your nature. It might be an old nature, but it is no longer your nature. A new creation behaves in a different way, with different desires, with different longings, with different wants. That does not mean that as a new creation in Christ, you cannot stumble into old ways. But what it does mean is that those old ways are no longer comfortable to you in the way that they used to be. They don't go unchallenged anymore. You might be able to, for a moment or for a season, engage in sin, but you cannot do so into perpetuity because you are a new creation. Consider it in another way. Imagine you get a hot cup of coffee and you drink it and it burns all of your taste buds off. And now for the next week or two, you can't taste anything. You don't really know what things taste like, so you just kind of go about life that way. And eventually your mouth heals. Your mouth is... Uh, revitalized, you can taste things again, and imagine the second that happens, you go right back to a hot cup of coffee and burn all your taste buds again. As a, as, a, as a Christian who engages in sin, this is what it is like to engage in sin on a regular basis. You engage in something that is damaging to you, it has lingering effects over you, eventually you come out of it, but it would be foolish, it would be strange to constantly deaden your taste buds, to constantly deaden your desires towards the sin which you engage in. This is just not to be expected for a believer. Sin is something which we do not engage in by nature anymore because we are a new kind of being. We have been remade. We have been reformed, refashioned after Christ. So we do not do things which are against nature, which are damaging to ourselves. And we certainly cannot do that without recognizing that it is damaging to ourselves. We might do things which damage ourselves, but we can't do so forever without recognizing this is damaging me. This is something that feels wrong. This is something that feels broken inside of me. Perhaps you know what that is like to engage in sin, to go back to an old familiar habit which you once had before Christ, and then to recognize after maybe a moment or a week that this is not who you are. This is not enjoyable in the same way it used to be. This is what it is like to be a new creation. Your desires are different. Your wants are different. You might find yourself returning to old habits, but you cannot do so without your new nature kicking in and saying, this is wrong, this is broken, this is not who we are anymore. This is the grace of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. Sins which we formerly could do as long as we wanted, as much as we wanted, without any guilt, are sins which the Spirit brings to our mind and our conscience. This is what it is to be a new creation. Another piece of being a new creation is to recognize that our new creation status is one that is inaugurated in Christ's resurrection and his rebirthing of his people through the power of the Spirit, but it is not completed yet. 
It is being worked out in our bodies over time, over our lifetimes. The idea that we are a new creation in an inaugural form, in a starting form, is a very important idea because it helps us to understand how it is that we can still struggle with sin, even though we are a new creation. We are not a new creation who no longer struggles with sin. We are a new creation who, as Paul says, is shaking off the old man, warring against the old man, so that we might have victory in our flesh. This is the New Testament exhortation to Christians to not engage in sin because we are different than that. But why do you have to tell people to not engage in sin unless they would struggle with sin? It is because we are inaugurally in new creation, not consummately in new creation. We are not in the finalized form of what that looks like. But this doesn't stop the New Testament from referring to us, you and I, as believers, not primarily as sinners anymore, but as saints. Consider how Paul addresses all the churches in his letters. He says, the church of God, saints. To the church that is in Ephesus, the saints of God. To the saints of God who are in Corinth. He addresses them as saints. This is now their identity. No longer a sinner. And particularly, I think particularly in the reformed world of the church, we struggle to recognize that we are not actually sinners in Christ anymore. We, have, we were once sinners saved by grace, but we are now saints being sanctified and having been sanctified by the precious blood of Christ. This means that sin is antithetical to who we are. When we identify ourselves primarily as sinners, the problem is we think sin is just what we do as a natural outflow. And many Christians, unfortunately, ongoingly struggle with sin in a losing form because they think that their primary identity is still as a sinner. Well, Christian, your identity is not as a sinner anymore. In Christ, you are a saint. And thus, sin is not who you are. As Paul would say, so stop sinning. <laughs> You've been forgiven freely by the grace of God. Does that mean you should keep going on in sin? Absolutely not, because it is not who you are anymore. It is wrong for you to sin, not because it threatens your salvation, but because it's just against what you have been made to be, who you have been born into the image of. It doesn't match. The other piece with the inaugurated resurrection expectation that we have is that we will be, in the end, victorious over all the sins which we currently war against. This is what we primarily ought to remember when we look at Christ's resurrection victory. Think about all of the sin, suffering, and pain which he endured on the cross, and yet he gets a glorified body which is perfected. It is different. It is it's new. This is the hope that we have when we war against sin and decay and corruption in this life. Perhaps it is not sin. Perhaps it is suffering which we war against. Perhaps it is our body which is failing upon us. Perhaps it is our flesh and our, our desires which fail us and we give ourselves over to sin. What we have as an assurance is that we will be victorious one day over all sins which we now struggle with. And if that is good news for you, it should be because that means that the sins you struggle with, meaning this week when you were struggling with sin, envy, impatience, slander, hatred, all manner of sin that you struggled with this week, you have a hope that in glory those won't even be temptations for you anymore. What good news is that? That the things that we war against in this lifetime now are things which are not even to touch us in our new bodies. Inaugurally, 
It creates a tension within us because as a new, as a new creation, we still war with the old. But ultimately, the, the old is gone and fading away and passing and the new has come. So the new wins. And that is a hope that Christians have. It helps us stay in the fight. It helps us stay in the race. We are resurrected bodily, and so therefore our bodies also experience this glorification in the end into new creation. So that means also that when we war against sin, we war against sin body and soul. Much of the New Testament teaching compares, let's say, the spirits to the flesh. And if you read that too shallowly, what you end up hearing is the soul versus the body or the spiritual versus the physical. That's not what Paul's talking about. Because Paul also will say things like your desires are fleshly, but are desires physical or are they spiritual soul desires? His point is to say that the fleshy things, those are things which are part of the old creation, and the spiritual man, the spiritual things, the things you ought to desire, they are part of the new creation. So he's talking about new creation versus old creation, not physical versus spiritual. Because we are called to subdue our bodies and to subdue our minds and to subdue our wills in our new creation so that we can glorify God. We are called to worship him heart, soul, mind, and strength, as the New Testament would teach. And we do that by submitting not just our bodies to discipline so that we may worship God. We also submit our minds and our wills to discipline so we can rightly worship God. All of it is to be redeemed by him. All of it is being redeemed by him. And so all of it is to be submitted and stewarded by us in reflection. Now here's one other piece that is worth touching upon before we kind of wrap this all together. And this is to be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. When we ask, where is the new heavens and new earth? Where is new creation to be found? Where is the work of Christ manifested? Is it off in the distant future somewhere? Here we find an answer to that question. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice the use of active and passive verbs. He is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Two active verbs, meaning they are ongoing right now. The old, past tense, has passed away. Behold, the new has come, past tense. The new has already arrived. The old has already passed away. If anyone is currently in Christ, he is currently a new creation. If you ask the question, where is new creation to be found? It's not just your hope, Christian, into the future. It's also your current confidence, your current reality, that you are right now, born again in Christ, a new creation. So where is Christ's work of new creation to be found? In, in his church, in his body. This is where he exercises his spirit. This is where he pours out his gifts. This is where he brings his gospel. This is where he brings his renewal to the earth. It is through his body, through the church, through his new creation, that we find all of the realities that he purchased in his resurrection. Not consummately, not in their final form, because the church is still 
marred. She's still not perfect. She's still not beautiful. And yet, in an increasing form, in a growing form, the new creation works itself out in the life of the church, in the life of individual Christians within the church, that we are the new creation of God. Now, this is wonderful news for us because in some part, knowing that we are right now the new creation gives us a hope that we will be completed as the new creation. So that he calls us new creations now. Think about where you are now in your sanctification walk with the Lord. And he can look at you right now and say you are a new creation. Think about all the hope that is entailed with where that is going to end up in the future. It is a different thing altogether. It is a different kind of creation. And yet, in some sense, it is a sample of what you are right now. There are so many ways you could try to picture this, but one of the ways that I think is helpful if you uh, think about samples in an ice cream shop, you can go to an ice cream shop, you can ask for samples of the different ice creams that they have in front of you, and you can get a little, like, quarter tablespoon of what they've got going on, and you can taste it. And it's a small taste, a sample of what you were to experience if you bought the whole thing, okay? That's a little bit what it's like to be an inaugurated new creation in Christ. You have a sample, a little taste of what is to be found if you were to, let's say, buy the whole pint that's in that thing and eat all of it. The new creation is similar in taste to the sample, and yet it is far more expansive, far more wonderful, far more marvelous than the sample is. Because the sample is just a sample. It's just a foretaste of what the final form looks like. So as a Christian, if you're thinking, I haven't made it very far, I don't know that my new creation is, is all that glorious in the future, it's just a sample. It's just a little taste. Think about all the moments of victory that you've had over sin from the time that you've met Christ till now, and that is just a small inkling of a taste of what it is like to have victory over sin finally in glory. It's a sample. It's a little example of what that looks like. Think of all the joy which you now experience in Christ, of which is only an imperfect, dim shadow of what you will enjoy when you are finally inaugurated, consummated into his new creation. A shadow is like the thing which it shows, but it is not detailed, it is not expansive, it is not three-dimensional, it is simply a shadow of what it portrays. So it is with inaugurated new creation and consummated new creation. Now suppose you're thinking about all these things and you're considering as a step back thinking, well, all that is wonderful and nice, but it really seems like it only applies to Christians, those who believe in Christ, those who are found in him. That is 100% true. This is true of Christians, believers, who, as Martha says here, do believe in Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the confession that we believe. This is true of Christians. So suppose you're not a Christian. What does all the new creation stuff have to do with you? Well, I said at the beginning, today we gather to re recall that Jesus is risen, that he is resurrected, not to debate whether or not historically we can validate the resurrection. That is for another time in another space. Today we worship the risen king. So here's what, what you can consider apart from Christ. Wouldn't you want this to be true if it were true? All of what I'm describing here in the new creation is true of Christians. So think of yourself not in Christ and think about, well, at least even if I don't believe it's true, wouldn't I want it to be true? Don't I want my struggles, my failings against sin to be done for? 
Don't I want to be rid of the corruption which I experience now in my body? Don't you want that to be true? If you're a Christian and you're not necessarily yet convinced that you will one day be glorified as a new creature in Christ, wouldn't it be wonderful if it was true? Now here's the testimony of Scripture. It indeed is true. You don't have to wonder. Because when the church is at its weakest, when individual Christians are at their most vulnerable, they're most tempted to despair, think about the book of Revelation. Christians are under heavy persecution in that book. And what does John do but he tells us about the throne room and the worship and the dominion of King Jesus and ultimately consummating at the end of Revelation the new heavens, the new earth, the perfected bride of Christ who weds herself to the Lamb and is found perfectly in him without spot or blemish or wrinkle or anything like that. The church at its most vulnerable is reminded of the fact that in its consummate glory, it will be perfected. So you don't have to wish it were true. You should wish that it was true. But you don't just have to wonder and wish if it were to be true. You can know with confidence that it is true. As exhibit A, we can consider Christ in his body, which he does not just come resurrecting spiritually, but as John's gospel makes a strong case, he resurrects physically to eat food, to walk with his disciples, to sit down with them, to converse with them, to even offer them to touch his hands and his side so that they might know that he is a physical creation, a physical new creation, a physical resurrection. So much so that Paul says to, to deny the physical resurrection is to deny the faith. It is to deny all that Christians believe. And I don't think Christians intentionally deny the bodily, physical resurrection of Christ. But we do slip into a spiritualizing of the resurrection of Christ in a way that often leads us to lose against sin and yet think that we're still doing okay. As a Christian, to lose against sin, to be on the losing end, is something that should feel so wrong you want to cast it off and walk faithfully in your newly created body. It is not tolerable for a Christian to engage in sin in an ongoing way because the trajectory of a Christian is to be perfected. And so thus, anything that deviates from perfection is to be strange, foreign, not comfortable. And it's an out-of-body experience. That is what sin is to a Christian. And let's say you think about sin in all these same ways. Sin is an out-of-body experience. It feels foreign. That's a good sign because the natural man cannot, is unable to, recognize sin in that same way. Those who are blinded by sin, blinded by their deception, blinded by the world and the devil and the powers that be, they are not able to recognize the deceitfulness and the brokenness and the corruption of sin. That's the reason Jesus has to come into the world to wake up the world to sin to proclaim the damaging nature of sin, to liberate them from their sin. So to even have an awareness of the brokenness of sin is in some sense a good sign because it tells us that the Spirit is at work to convict, to convey the truth of the gospel, and ultimately to bring about a hope of a resurrected future. And this is what we remember when we think about Christ as our new creation we confess on this Lord's Day exactly what Martha here confesses, where she says, I believe in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus says, I am the resurrection that you speak of. And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are. This is the confession of the Christian. This is what we remember as believers this day. And now the question that Jesus asks to her that I put to you, do you believe this? Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are forever in your debt, forever in your praise, for all that you accomplished in your life, in your death, in your descent, in your resurrection, in your ascension, and in your current reign. Lord, how marvelous are your works, how unsearchable is your wisdom, and how glorious are all your deeds in the earth. Amen.